Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to His Word being preached. You know, um, for many decades now, um, scholars have been convinced that as we become, um, as we become more and more advanced as a society, more and more educated as a society, we become less and less religious. Um, and and in, in other words, um, that, they, that there's a direct propor- um, correlation, if I can put it that way, between advancement in education uh, and, um, and knowledge and so on, and advancement in secularism. That the more advanced and educated we become, the more and more secular we become. Um, of course, those were secular people to start off with thought that, you know, and sort of patting themselves on the back in a sense for, for um, being more advanced and, and educated and learned. So you can sort of understand that. But it turned out to be completely wrong. And, and, and many, if not most scholars, are sort of dropping that idea because the, the reality is just different. Society, as we're advancing, is not becoming more and more secular. In fact, on, on the contrary, it's becoming more and more spiritual, more and more religious. But there's a bit of a difference. There is a, a major shift that has happened because <clears throat> I think for the first time in many generations, we are more and more experiencing a pluralistic society where the question is no longer, shall I believe, but in whom or in what shall I believe? The question is no longer, shall I believe in God, but which God shall I believe in? So there's a major change that happened, and we're going to read a little bit from 1 Kings 17, uh, from Elijah's life. Um, And Elijah lived in such a pluralistic society, where the question was not so much, Shall I believe or shan't I? But whom shall I believe in? Whom shall I believe in? Which God? And specifically in Yahweh's time, the two major choices, I mean, there were many other choices. There was a whole pantheon of gods that you could believe in. And you didn't just, according to most people's idea, just like today, you didn't just have to believe in one. Even though the God of the Bible required soul commitment and faith in him Um, you know the other gods of other nations and other religions didn't mind so much but the big choice was between Baal and Yahweh the God of the Bible um, in those days and 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 we are our times I think are more similar to Elijah's time than it's been for many hundreds of years I mean for hundreds of years past up up until you know a, a few decades ago the choice wasn't so much in which God should I believe, but shall I believe or shan't I? You know, because there was usually just one choice. You know, if you were German, then there was sort of the Lutheran church. If you were Italian, there was sort of the Catholic church. If you were Indian, you know, there was Hinduism. If there was, you know, whatever, you know, there was like one choice. But, but society has changed drastically and become much more pluralistic so that we need discernment to ask the question, which God is the true God? Which God is the real God? Which God, in the words of Elijah, is the living God? Um, and, you know, some of you might say, nah, you know, this whole choice, you know, of 
which God shall I believe in? I'm not sure I'm interested in that. I'm more sort of an atheist. But even that is a faith choice, isn't it? Even that is a faith choice. Because the reality is <clears throat> you need a foundation in your life to use the words of, um, that Ben used. You need a foundation in your life. You need something to support you and something to sustain you. And if you don't choose someone else, a God, to trust in, then you're going to have to trust in yourself. In other words, you're going to have to be your own God. So it's still a faith choice. You're still choosing a God. You're still going to require someone to take care of you and to uh, determine right and wrong for you. Um, and, and, and some people might say, yeah, you know, but any, you know, all religions are the same, aren't they? Um, it doesn't really matter, just as long as you make a choice. It doesn't really matter what you choose. But, but that's a bit like saying, um, you know, all white people are the same or all black people are the same. I mean, how would you feel if someone comes up to you and say, all black people look the same? You sort of bristle a bit. You won't be so happy with it. And you'll say to them, but clearly you don't know many black people very well. You know, maybe that's why... Black people look the same to you, or white people, or Asian people, or whatever, look the same to you. Clearly, you don't know any of them very well. And it's the same with religion. If you say all religions look the same to you, it's because you don't know any of them really well. So, I can guarantee you that if you ask people who do know the religions they believe in well, they'll, ask you, they'll tell you that all religions are not the same. So, the reality is you do have to make a choice. And, and it is a choice between gods and religions that are radically different from one another. They're not the same God. Uh, and God claims to be the living God. I just want to um, read you the passage up on the screen, if you can just um, go there. From, this is from 1 Kings chapter 17. I'm just going to start uh, from uh, reading verse 1 and verse 11 and 12 and um, then we're going to get to the actual story that I want to focus on. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, he was the king of Israel who had imported Baal worship and institutionalized it, built a temple for Baal in Samaria, built an altar, was sacrificing to it. They'd um, given Baal prophets government appointments, you know, and, and they were paying them salaries from the government to go and evangelize, you know, 450 Baal prophets and 400 prophets of Asherah, and sending them out into Israel to go and convert the whole of Israel, and killing, as we're going to see, uh, as you see in the next chapter, the, the prophets of Yahweh. So Ahab was, was this king, and, 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 and Elijah said to him, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. So, like I said uh, in one of the previous um, sermons in this series, God uh, God was, as it were, through Elijah, dropping the gauntlet to Baal. Because Baal was the rider on the clouds. That's literally how he's described in, in the writings of Canaan. The rider on the clouds, the thunder god, the one who brings the rain. And here comes the prophet of Yahweh and he says, it won't rain for a couple of years except at my word, the word that comes from Yahweh. So he was, he was dropping the gauntlet in no uncertain terms. Um, and then he has to run away, and, and God sends him to this um, widow in Zarephath, which was inside in Phoenicia, the kingdom of Phoenicia, where, where Baal comes from. In other words, Baal's hometown. Um, he sends him there, um, and, and, and she was going to get 
And verse 11 says, as she was going to get it, because he asked her for some bread, uh, Elijah called, and bring me please a piece of, of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives. Notice the, she's echoing what Elijah said to Ahab. As the Lord the God of Israel lives. And then she says, as, as surely as the Lord your God lives. She clearly heard about this. You know, she clearly heard about him confronting the king and doing his mic drop and then heading off, you know. <laughs> um, as surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Okay, so she's not very positive about the future. You know, death hangs as a cloud over them. They have no more food. They're probably already starving. They're going to eat the last and then just die. That's, that's sort of her expectation. Okay, and verse 17 says, um, Sometime later, as the son of the woman who owned the house, uh, sorry, sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. What happened was, Elijah, she gave Elijah, the, she made some bread for him, and, and a miracle occurred. And the flour and the oil was multiplied, and, and the, the, it didn't run out. And, and this is a couple of months later, you know, that, that this happens. At least a couple of months. It might even be more than a year later. He fell ill. And it says, and he grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. Sometimes wonder, you know, it, it, it says he grew worse and worse. It sort of seems like it happened over time. So, you know, I, I, well, when I was reading, I was wondering, didn't Elijah notice? <laughs> you know? What's going on? It doesn't seem like he did anything. So in verse 18 it says, And she, the widow, came to Elijah, said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms. So clearly it was a boy. You know, she was carrying him, so he was a, he was a young boy. Carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed, on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Um, and the question here is, and that's why we have this repeated thing, as the Lord your God lives, who is the living God? Who is the, real, who is the living God and who are the dead gods? Who is the real God and who are the false gods? That's the question, or part of the question that this um, passage uh, addresses. And some of you might think, oh, you know, who's the real God? I've sort of already made up my mind about that. But not only who's the real God, but what is he like? We were singing, for instance, you're a good, good father. That's who you are. And whether you believe that's true or not has a massive practical influence in your life. In fact, the question, who is the real God and what is he like, is probably the most practical question you can ask. Or like uh, one um, famous guy, uh, writer, A.W. Tozer, said, what comes to a man's mind when he thinks about God is the most important thing about that man. 
you might think, well, isn't that a bit of an overstatement? No, it's not. Whatever comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you because everything else, I mean, that is the crux of your worldview. The crux of how you see the world is who the God is who created the world and what he is like. And everything else in your worldview flows from that. So what you think people are like, what you think you are like, depends on what you think God is like. How you relate to other people depends on what you think they are like. How you live, you know, how you treat other people, whether you're honest or dishonest, whether you're kind and gentle or harsh, all depends on this question of who you think God is. Whether you think it's worthwhile, you know, bringing children into the world, all depends on this question. Almost everything about you depends in some way or another on this question. So I agree with A.W. Tozer. Whatever comes into your mind when you think about God is probably the most important thing about you. And therefore, this, this question we're concerning is a very practical question. And I just want to look at it um, in this way. Only the living God can overcome death. Um, because you'll see that death is quite a, a prominent theme in this passage. Um, you know, we're going to eat some bread and die, you know. And then a son eventually does die. Uh, and, and, and then she asks, you know, is it, do you come to bring my son to remembrance and kill my son? You know, and then, and then the son eventually is resurrected. So I just want to look at it under four headings. Number one, the cause of death. Number two, the nature of death. Number three, what I call the test of death, and I'll explain that. And then number four, the, the cure for death. So let's just look at the cause of death. Um, the widow's statement is quite revealing and, and, and implicit in the statement of the widow in, in, in verse 18 when she says... What do you have against me, man of God? Have you come? Literally, she says, not to remind me, but she says, to bring my sin to remembrance and kill my son. That's literally what she says. And, and there's a clear cause and effect in, in the original language, uh, a cause and effect relationship between bringing my sin to remembrance and killing my son. And there's a few assumptions that, she, that, that, that are implicit in that statement. The, the one is the, the, the sort of belief or acknowledgement that she's guilty of sin. Have you come to bring my sin to remembrance? In other words, she doesn't deny that she's guilty of sin. <laughs> she, she just thought that her sin was sort of covered and not remembered. <laughs> and therefore she can get away with it. But now, it, you know... She, she benefited from the man of God being there because the flower's not running out and the oil's not running out and she and her, her, her son are surviving on that. But, but now she feels like, you know, the presence of the man of God has, has sort of turned against her because now this man of God has come and brought her sin to remembrance before God and now, you know, she's being punished for it. So, so the first assumption is that she is guilty of sin. She, she never denies that. She, she's actually implying that by what she says. And the, the second thing is that God has the right to judge sin. God has the right to judge sin. You see, that is something we struggle a bit with as modern people, isn't it? We like a God who is a good, good father, who gives good things to us, but we don't like a God who is also a judge and who judges evil. But here's the thing, you know, 
if your God can never disagree with you, and if your God can never do things and say things that you struggle with, then you're probably worshiping an idealized version of yourself. And not a real God. You're probably worshiping a false God, an idol. Let me put it a different way. If your God that you believe in fits into your mind, he probably comes from your mind. The God who created your mind doesn't fit into your mind. He's a bit bigger than that. All right, Tori used to say, you know, trying to understand God is like trying to fit the ocean of divine truth into the pint-sized cup of human understanding. It's a, a, it's a, it, it can inevitably only be partially successful. If you believe in a God that you always understand all the time and that only always does what you'd like him to do, then you don't believe in the real God, not the God of the Bible, not the creator of the world. I mean, just think about it. In our, if we are truly sinful, as this widow admits that she is, then our minds and even our thinking is tainted with sin. And then if a sinless God comes and does certain things, because of our sin, there'll be certain things that, that he does and says that we'll disagree with. Right? That just makes sense. And it will be different because we struggle with different areas of sin. It will be different for each person. What we disagree with and what we don't like about what he says and does will be different for each person. But the reality is that God, this woman assumes that God has the right to judge sin. Almost the responsibility, you can say. And, and you know, Elijah even confirms that. I mean, if you just look at, um, just bring it up again, um, verse 17, there we go. Uh, Elijah took this son and he said, Lord, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I'm staying with by causing a son to die? Elijah doesn't say, Lord, I know you, you know. This woman, you know, she's a Gentile. She's uneducated. I have a PhD in Yahweh worship from the University of Jerusalem. I am the local theologian. I know you understand. I represent you. And I know this woman's got it wrong, you know. You don't do things like that. You don't judge the guilty. No, he doesn't. He says, Lord, have you? <laughs> and notice what he says. He says, have you, have you brought tragedy even on this widow? Literally, he says, have you brought tragedy also on this widow? Why is the also there? Why is the even there? God had brought tragedy on the whole region by bringing the drought on the region. The drought is judgment for Israel and the surrounding nations turning away from Yahweh and turning to Baal. So God, this is in a context of God bringing judgment on sin. And now he's saying, but Lord, have you also brought judgment and tragedy on this widow? Whom I'm staying with. I mean, she's taking care of me. She's looking after me, you know. <laughs> What's going on here? But the reality is he doesn't deny that God does that. That God does bring judgment on sin. So the, the one assumption is that she's guilty of sin. The second assumption is that God can judge the guilty. And the third assumption, um, and this is um, one that in a sense is quite... Um, common knowledge. The third assumption is that the, the rightful judgment for sin is death. Someone or something must die. 
And the New Testament confirms this. In fact, let me just read that um, this, just so that you can see. Uh, in Romans 5, verse 12, for those of you who are taking notes, um, it says, Romans 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. Can you see the later on in the next chapter, Paul says, and the wages of sin is death. The wages, the payment, when the payout comes for sin, that payout is death. Sin came in, death came into the world through sin. So this woman's assumption there so is, all, is also right, that the, punish, the punishment, the judgment, the wages of sin is death. But here comes the fourth assumption, and this is the surprising one. She says, have you brought to remembrance my sin and killed my son? Have you brought into remembrance my sin and in payment for it, not taken my life, but taken my son's life? Now, the assumption is that someone else can pay that penalty of death on behalf of her sin. And that's what she's asking. She's asking, listen, I know I'm, I'm guilty of sin. I know I deserve death. But is it my son's life that's being taken as a payment for that debt, for that sin? That's the question she's asking. Now, <laughs> it's interesting that she conveniently forgets that her son would have died in any case. I mean, she, she's, you know, saying, but, you know, your presence here, man of God, is bringing the spotlight onto my sin, and now, you know, my chickens are coming in to roost, you know. I, I'm having to pay my debts because God's eye is upon you, and therefore now, because you're living with me, is upon me, and now, you know, this debt has come up, my, my sin debt has come up, and I have to pay for it. But she f conveniently forgets that she said, you know, I'm just going to gather a few sticks here, you know, take the last flour and oil, bake some little, you know, cake of bread, and, and my son and I are going to eat it and die. <laughs> They're going to die in any case. And this is a couple of months later. And, and, and she forgets that a life God creates, and, and, and even more so a life God rescues, belongs to God. Um, then let's just look also. This, this passage also tells us a little bit about the nature of death. See, many modern people believe that death... Um, is the end. Or, or let me put it this way. Many modern people believe that we are only physical beings. We're just bodies. The, the part that you can see and feel, you know, and smell and, and, and hear and all that, the, the, the part that you, can, that you can register with your senses, your five senses, that's the only real part. That's the only part there is to human beings. And therefore, when you die, you know, you just go and hunt moles in a wooden submarine, you know, you just become, you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, you know, that's the end, you know, you just become fertilizer. <laughs> that, that, that's it, you know, that, there's, there's nothing after death. But, but this, this passage actually tells us differently, because it says, uh, just bring it up again on the screen, um, this, uh, the, next, the next slide, it says, then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and said, Lord, God, let this boy's life return to him. And in verse 22 says, the Lord heard uh, Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him. Now, the translation of the NIV uh, slightly obscures the point. W it, the word which the NIV translates life, 
His life returned to him. It's literally the word, his soul. In the, in the Hebrew, it's nefesh. His soul returned to him. And the picture created here was that when this boy died, you know, he became ill, he became worse and worse, he stopped breathing. When he stopped breathing, not only did his breath leave him, but his soul left him. In other words, there was a part of him, a non-physical part of him, that, that, that is distinguishable from his physical body, which upon his death left his physical body, departed from his physical body. To go where? I mean, the passage doesn't tell us. But he departed from his physical body. And when he was resurrected, when Elijah stretched himself out of me, cried out for his life, the Lord returned that non-physical part of the boy called his soul, his nephesh in the Hebrew, returned it to his body and he lived. In other words... This passage is challenging us to not have a one-dimensional or a two-dimensional, a flat view of human beings. You're not just a body. You're more than a body. You also have a soul. You also, there are also parts of you which are not tangible or visible, but are as real. As real. Now, the interesting thing is that, that this is the very first recorded resurrection in the Bible. The very first recorded resurrection in the Bible. Which means it's very significant. And it tells us that physical death is reversible. So often we think it's the end. And in the famous words of, I think it was, was Churchill, it's not the end. It's not even the beginning of the end. It's only the end of the beginning. <laughs> Physical death is only the end of the beginning. It's not the end. It's just the end of the beginning. Because physical death is reversible. And in fact, we know from later on, especially in the New Testament, that it, all physical death will be reversed. Everyone will be resurrected. The righteous unto life and the unrighteous, those who don't have a relationship with God, unto death and judgment. So, um, it tells us about, about the nature of death. It tells us about the, the cause of death, and the, which is sin, and the nature of death. Um, and then it also reveals the test of death. Now, here I just want to explain. In the Canaanite mythology, Baal, um, like I said, he was the storm god. He was the god of the weather, the rider on the clouds, the thunder god. The one who brought the rains and therefore is connected with fertility and life. Because when the rains came, the, the, the earth yielded its produce, which the people lived off. So it, it's you know, quite obvious that, that, it, that those connections would be made. Um, and, but how did they, how did the Canaanites in their Canaanite mythology explain the fact that sometimes the rain didn't come? Sometimes the rain didn't come. You know, in the off-season, now I can't remember, I mean, they're in the northern, the northern hemisphere, can't remember whether they have a summer or winter rainfall region, but, but when it wasn't the rainfall time, the rain ceased. How did they explain that? And then furthermore, how did they explain droughts like this? Because, I mean, this wasn't the first drought that happened in Israel. 
How did they explain it? And how they explained it in their mythologies, there was another god in, in the Canaanite mythology called Mot. He was the god of death. And when the rainy season was passed and it became dry and it no longer rained, they said that Baal had, been sub, had to submit to, to Mot and actually go into the netherworld, into the, the abode of the dead, and actually die. And then later on, you know, when the rainy season came up again, his, his consort called Anat would come and, and help him and rescue him. So he couldn't even rescue himself from death. He had to be rescued by his girlfriend <laughs> from death, <laughs> you know, in this Canaanite mythology, you know. Um, and, and that's why, you know, when, when Elijah, and, 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 and just interesting, Elijah's name comes from El, which means God, and Yah, which is the shortened word of, version of Yahweh. Yahweh is God. Not Baal is God, but Yahweh is God. His very name epitomizes his ministry and his message. No, 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 Baal is not God. Yahweh is God. Okay? Um, why, he says, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, in other words, whom I serve, whom you don't serve. And it's, it's sort of a, you know, a, a little stab at Baal. You know, Yahweh is the God who lives, where Baal is the God who dies. <laughs> and he dies ever so often. <laughs> and, and he was claiming to have power over the rain clouds and over the weather and so on. And, and God, God was saying, in your very area of expertise, I'm going to take you on and I'm going to beat you. I'm going to show you as a fraud. I'm going to show you up as a fraud. Um, so, um, Baal, the God of... Phoenicia, the god of Sidon, the god of thunder, the god of the weather, was being challenged. And here's, here's what's happening here. Here's what's happening here. First, I mean, let me, Laura, just start with a bit of background and explain it. If you go to, to, um, to 1 Kings 20, verse 28, and in fact, let me just read that to you. Um, 1 Kings 20, verse 28. There's something very interesting. It says, Then the man of God came up and told the king of Israel, This is what the Lord says. This is what Yahweh says, in other words. Because the Arameans think the Lord, Yahweh, is a God of the hills and not a God of the valleys, I will deliver this vast army into your hands, and you will know that I am the Lord. That's such an interesting statement there. Because there was this idea, this conception, because they, they were polytheistic. Most of the societies, almost all the societies were polytheistic. They believed in multiple gods. They believed in gods that were, had power in certain areas. So there was a god, Yahweh, the god of Israel, and then Baal, the god of Phoenicia. And Baal had power in Phoenicia. But when Baal, when the followers of Baal, the Phoenicians, conquered Israel, then it was a sign that Baal was stronger than Yahweh. The God of the Phoenicians was stronger than the God of Israel. And because through Jezebel, in a sense, they had conquered Israel by marrying Ahab, and he'd taken on their religion, Baal worship, and built a temple for Baal in Samaria, they were saying, no, Baal's stronger. And remember, First and Second Kings were written to Israelites quite a while after this who were in captivity in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. 
So the same argument was being used against them. No, the God of the Babylonians is stronger than Yahweh, the God of Israel, and that's why the Babylonians could conquer Israel. So the question was, is God only God in Israel? And are there other gods in other areas that are stronger than him? But not only that, I mean, you had the God of the sea, and you had the God of, like, Baal, the God of, of the weather and fertility, etc. And they, each God has sort of his own area of expertise. And, and these Aramaeans were saying, no, 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 the Israelites beat us the previous time because we fought them on the hilltops, and their God is the God of the hilltops. <laughs> but get a, another big army like before, and, and let's challenge them in the valleys because their God is tough on the hilltops, but he's... He's not so tough in the valleys. Can you see the same idea? And then God says, listen, through the man of God, through the prophet, because these Arameans have said this, you know, that, that's an insult to me. Because the Arameans have said this, I'm going to give this vast army that's so much bigger than you into your hands, you're going to conquer them. Because I'm going to prove that I'm not just the God of the hilltops. And I'm not just the God of the valleys. He says, then you will know that I am the Lord. What does the word the Lord mean? It means I am the one who is and the one who causes all else to be. In other words, I'm different from all the other gods who have their little areas of expertise. I am the one who is and the one who causes all else to be. Everything is my area of expertise. I'm God everywhere. And he proves that, you know, by even though Baal is now, you know, the new political God, official God of Israel through Ahab and Jezebel, he says, it won't rain. The very thing that Baal's supposed to give, or do you, except at the word of Yahweh through my mouth. I'm going to to prove to you he's a fraud in Israel, still. But not only that, then he sends Elijah to Zarephath, which is between Tyre and Sidon, in the center of the kingdom of Phoenicia, into Baal's backyard. And then he proves that in the midst of this drought, which is already a slap in Baal's face, Yahweh can provide in Phoenicia, in Baal's very backyard. So God's not only God in Israel, He's also the God in Ph- God of Phoenicia, Baal's very hometown. But not only that, here's the question now. As the Canaanite mythology admits, Baal has to sometimes, often, regularly submit to Mot, the God of death. In other words, Baal gets dragged into the, the underworld into death, and there he has no power. There he can do nothing. Now the question is, does Yahweh also have such boundaries? It's been proven that he's not only a God of the hills, but also of the valleys, not only a God of Israel, but also of Sidon, but is he also God in the underworld? Or is death a barrier that even Yahweh cannot cross? That's the question. That's the question. The test of death The test of the living God is can he overcome death? Can he overcome death? Or does he have to constantly submit to death? So, we see that God resurrects this boy as proof that even the barrier of death is still God and death and in Sheol, the the abode of the death. Of the dead, and then finally, number four, the cure of, of death. Um, like I said, this is the first mention of resurrection in the Bible, which means it's significant and it contains the truth about it in seed form, about resurrection in seed form. Um, in other words, what, what I mean by that is this very first resurrection in, recorded in the Bible tells us something about every resurrection. 
that'll ever come. And, and it very subtly but very powerfully it points forward to the most significant resurrection of all time. Um, it says that Elijah takes this boy from his mother and carries him and puts him on, on his own bed. He carries him into the upper room and puts him on his own bed. That was the place that he would lie down, into his place. Okay, that's significant. And it might seem a bit subtle, but it's, it's significant. Elijah is putting him into his place. Um, I had a story just sort of on the side, which was similar and interesting. A guy called Smith Wigglesworth, he was a plumber who got um, saved and, and he was powerfully anointed by the Holy Spirit. He was an English, British guy. Um, uneducated, you know, never really went to school, never learned to read properly, although God enabled him to read, his, to read the Bible. Um, he was ministering in some other little town in England. You know, it was a mining town. So he was having crusades during the day, and he was staying with a woman who was a Christian, a believer, and her husband was not. He didn't believe in God. And she, she invited him specifically because she, she thought maybe they could sort of connect a bit, and then this great preacher, Smith Wigglesworth, could um, minister to her husband, and maybe he'd, 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 he'd be converted, you know, uh, get born again and give his life to the Lord and, and be saved, you know, because she, she really had a, a burden for him. Uh, but, but her husband was working, I think, in the coal mines. So, um, so he worked a day shift. Uh, he worked, actually, he worked night shift. And, and during the... Um, no, hang on, I'm wrong. He worked, he worked day shift. So, so during the night... No, sorry. Her husband slept in the bed by day because he worked night shift. And, and Wigglesworth obviously had the crusades in the day and, and then he'll sleep in... Because they only had, you know, the... the that bed, you know, in the night he'd sleep there. Um, and because her husband was a coal miner, you know, it was kind of dirty work, you know. So she changed the sheets every day, you know. Every time her husband's finished sleeping and he stand, gets up for night shift to go to the coal mines, she'd sort of, you know, wash out, because they didn't bath every day, you know, wash out the dirty coal, you know, blackened sheets and, and put a new change of sheets on so that uh, Smith Wigglesworth, the man of God, you know, could come and sleep in a clean bed. And, um, you know, she was pestering the whole time, you know, please, you know, you need to connect with my husband. Please just speak to him or share the gospel with him or pray for him or something, you know. He needs to be saved. And she was praying all the time, really interceding for her husband. But things worked out that they never sort of, they were never there at the same time, you know. So eventually, you know, Wigglesworth apparently, according to the story, said to her one um, morning, you know, when he was, went off to the crusades, and she asked him again, please, you know, can't you do something for my husband? He said, don't change the sheets. And I was just make the bed like that and keep the sheets, my sheets on, you know, like they were there. So she did that. She just kept the sheets there. And her husband, according to the story, came home, you know, got into bed, fell asleep, and then woke up, you know, screaming in terror and, and, and fell on his knees and started repenting. <laughs> so great was the, was the anointing on Smith Wigglesworth. You know, it's like the story of Peter in the... In the book of Acts, where, where, they, where the handkerchiefs and all kinds of stuff that touched his body were sent to the sick. And when it was touched their body, um, bodies, they got healed. Now, it, 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 this, this sort of reminds me of this, where Elijah takes this boy and puts him in his own bed. So, firstly, he puts him in his own bed. And then, secondly, notice, it says, he, he, he took him up to the upper room. Okay. Ironically, there's another upper room. Because remember, the question here is, this widow's real question is, I know I'm guilty. I know you're a, a holy God who judges sin. 
I know you have the right, I know the, 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 the punishment for sin is death, but my question is, is my son paying the price for my sin? Is my son paying the price for my sin? So a few hundred years later, also in the upper room, Jesus, when he institutes the communion, he explains, no. Her son's life is not given as a ransom for her sin, as a payment for her sin. God's son's life is given as a payment for sin. And it's like God is saying to this woman, not, not your son, but my son in the upper room. But how does it happen? I mean, it says, and this is actually quite strange, it says he stretched himself out on, on this, this boy three times. He put this boy down on his bed, and now he stretched himself out on the boy. And the commentators have, have a big problem with that. They don't really know what to do with it, you know. It, it's a bit confusing, you know. What, what's going on here? What is he doing, you know? But, I, I mean, just if you think about it, he's lying on top of the boy. Now, some, some of the commentators say, no, he's probably doing uh, resuscitation. He's probably doing mouth-to-mouth. Now, obviously, you know, a grown man lying on top of a, a young boy, you know, that's not... I don't know how you do resuscitation, but I don't think that's going to help the poor boy breathe, you know? <laughs> you know, there's this weight of this grown man on top of him, you know? That's, that's not what's going on here. It, it, this is symbolic action, you know? He's stretching, on the first place, he's, he's doing two things. He's stretching himself on the boy, and secondly, he's covering the boy. Um, there's another account, let me just read that to you, in Second Kings 4 where Elisha, who was Elijah's disciple, did something very similar, but the the text actually gives us more information. It gives us more detail on what happened there. Just listen to this. This There's also a widow, uh, a Shunammite widow, um, who died, whose whose son died, sorry. And it said in verse 34, Then he got on the bed and lay on the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands, As he stretched himself out, exactly the same words, can you see that? As he stretched himself out on him, on the boy, the boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away and walked back and forth in the room and then got on the bed and stretched out on on, on him once more. And the boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Now, there we, we see a bit more about what's going on here. When Elijah stretches himself out on the boy, hand to hand, eye to eye, mouth to mouth, It's as though every part of him is covering the corresponding part of the boy. He's covering the boy on the one hand. So if you took water and you threw it at the boy, it would fall on Elijah. He's covering him. He's stretching out. Now, there's a place in in, in John's Gospel, in John 21... I'm not going to read it now. I think it's verse 18 and 19, where, where, where Jesus says to, says to Peter, when you were young, you went where you wanted to, but when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands. Same idea. And be led where you don't want to go. And, and then it says in the next verse, by this he told him how, but with which death he would glorify. Talked about you'll stretch out your arms, and your arms will be stretched out. And, and, and Peter was crucified upside down in fact he asked to be crucified upside down he said i don't want to die um, in the same way as my lord i'm not worthy of it crucify me upside down so they crucified him upside down but he was stretched out so on the one hand the stretching out speaks of death in a sense elijah through the stretching out was was almost saying you know take my life for his 
covering him. Now, almost the reverse happens. Here you have a dead boy with Elijah stretching out over him and covering him, and he gets resurrected. A dead son gets resurrected. On the cross, you have a dead son who is being stretched out and covering mankind so that they can be resurrected. So that they can be resurrected. So that we can be resurrected. And this was a foreshadowing, sort of a a contrasting foreshadowing of what God was planning all along. No, not your son won't have to die for your sins. My son will die for your sins. This very first um, resurrection recorded in Scripture uh, points towards that. It also said that Elijah cried out. Twice it says, Elijah cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, let this boy's life return to him. Once again, in contrast to that, Jesus, when he was stretched out, he also cried out, My God, my God, why have you you forsaken me? But whereas when Elijah was stretched out and he cried out to the Lord, his prayer was answered. When Jesus was stretched out and he cried out to his Father, to God, his prayer was not answered. He was forsaken so that we wouldn't have to be. Can you see? Can you see how this is a picture of what God did for us? Now, so... God was saying to this widow, not your son, but mine. Your son won't die for your sins. My son will die for your sins. And they notice probably the, the, one of the most interesting and surprising things about this whole account. Right at the end, in verse 24, it says, Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man, uh, that you are a man of God and that the words of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. Now I know. And you want to say, but... Hang on, you know, haven't you been living for months off a little bit of flour in a, in a, in a, in a container that didn't run out and, and, a, and a little bit of oil in a jar that didn't run out? How can you say, now I know? And then now there's emphatic. It's placed in the beginning of the sentence, even in, in the Hebrew, to be emphatic, you know. Now I know. I mean, <laughs> didn't you know before? Didn't that sustaining, continuous miracle already convince you that the word of the Lord through Elijah is true and that God is the true God? Because previously he was saying, the Lord your God. Not the Lord my God, the Lord your God. And it's as... Here's the thing. She'd heard of Elijah's miracles. That's why she says, you know, as the Lord your God lives, you know, she'd heard about Elijah's life and what had happened. But that wasn't enough. It's not enough hearing about the Lord's miracles. But then she's experienced the Lord's miracles. The flour, the oil was multiplied and it didn't run out. It was a genuine miracle. A sustaining miracle. A miracle she benefited from directly and continuously. That she couldn't deny. But even that wasn't enough. She needed to experience a resurrection. And for so many people that we have contact with. We think, if only they can experience a, resur- uh, a miracle. And that's good. People should experience miracles. But unless they experience, are, are convinced of the ultimate miracle, the resurrection, they will never truly believe and be able to say, now I know. Now I know that the word of the Lord through you is true. Because... Now I know that your God is is the living God. 
And that even death isn't a barrier for him. He reigns even over the abode of death. And he can rescue people from it. Now I know. He's the living God. He's the true God. He's the one that can give life. All the other gods like Baal are pretenders. They, they pretend that they can give life. They pretend that they can give rain. They pretend that they can provide. But all that they claim to be able to give, only Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the living God, can truly give. Now I know. Now I know that His word is true and all the promises that He makes is true. Not only that He will sustain in this life, but that He can rescue from death itself. Now I know. He's the living God. Now I know His word is true. And if you want to have that kind of faith, you want to have that kind of faith, you must know. You must experience the resurrection. And that widow's resurrection, the, the, the widow's son, the resurrection of the widow's son only pointed forward to the resurrection of God's son. And after the resurrection of God's son, we can also say, now I know that the word of the Lord is true and that every promise of God will come true. Every promise of God will come true. Because not only did he die on behalf of my son, when my son... <laughs> when, when my sin was brought to remembrance, he died. And, and, and you know, the, the accusation that she was giving to Elijah was, you, you did it. I know you talked to God. You reminded God of my sin, <laughs> didn't you? You reminded God of my sin, and now I, my son has to pay the price with his life. You, man of God, what have you got against me? Why did you remind God of my sin? You see, Jesus does exactly the opposite. He died for our sins. So that he wouldn't have to remind the Father of our sins. We're just as sinful as that widow. We're just as guilty as that widow. But instead of reminding the Father of our sins, Jesus takes them away as far as the east is from the west. So that God the Father can remember our sins no more. God takes our sin and, and he puts them into his forgettery. <laughs> and it's, it's not like God has selective amnesia but he just doesn't he, he chooses not to think of our sin not to remember them and hold them against us because his son already died for our sins now, now what does this mean for us just in, in closing two things it means number one that if if this is true and God's son died for your sins and you you believe in Him. You've allowed Him to, as it were, stretch Himself out upon you. Mouth to mouth, eye to eye, hand to hand. So that every part of you touches every part of Him. Not just some part of you touches some part of Him on Sunday when you come to church. But every part of you touches every part of Him. You have surrendered yourself to Him. If you have done that, then you will never, ever again experience suffering as a form of judgment. You will experience suffering, don't get me wrong, you will experience suffering just like Jesus did, but you will never again experience suffering as judgment because the judgment of God has already been poured out upon the one who has been stretched out on you. It's already been poured out on him. You will never, you will, you, you will suffer, but you will, that suffering won't be judgment. So that you can stand in the midst of life and even suffer in life and say, it's not because I am, 
I'm being judged. It's not because God is displeased with me. It's not because God rejects me. As we so often say, because I know His Son has already been stretched out on me and has already covered me and already received the judgment that should fall on me. And that allows us to deal with the suffering of life. Because, yes, we suffer, but our suffering is not a sign of God's rejection of us. God accepts us despite the fact that we suffer. That's the one thing. And then the other thing is, because Elijah, I mean, this woman knew that God was a holy God, a God of judgment, who has the right to punish sin and who punishes it with death. But Elijah knew that and agreed with that, but knew something else, that God is a God of mercy and forgiveness, who forgives sin. And has mercy on sinners. Yes, he judges sin, but he also has mercy on sinners. And that's why Elijah prayed. He didn't just say, yeah, God is a God of judgment. God has the right and and the responsibility to judge sin. And he judges sin with death and your son has died. And therefore, you know, this is God's will. And there's nothing to be done about it. No. He didn't only have the humility to admit guilt of sin and the consequence of sin. He also had the hope of God's mercy to take that son and pray for him and say, God, I know you're right to judge sin and you're right to bring death, but I ask you for mercy. This woman is a widow. She has no one else. In those days, women couldn't work except if you became a prostitute. That was the only job you could do. You needed a husband, either a father or a husband or an eldest son who could take care of you. She didn't have a father anymore. She didn't have a husband anymore. And now her son was being taken away from her also. And that would leave a destitute. And, and, and Elijah was saying, Lord, mercy. Have mercy. I know you're a God of judgment. And, and I know she's guilty of sin. Just like Israel is guilty of sin. And, and I know you're judging Israel. But do you need to also judge her? Have mercy on her, Lord. And God heard his cry for mercy. And he forgave the sin. And he resurrected his son. You see, we must know not only that God is a holy God and a God of judgment, but we must also know that God is a God of mercy. Otherwise, we'll never be able to pray like Elijah prayed. We might in humility submit to the consequences of our guilt, but we'll never in hope be able to ask for mercy despite our guilt. And that's what prayer is. Do you know that because there is one who has been stretched out on you, you can have hope, you can ask for mercy? Do you ask for mercy like Elijah does? Do you ask for mercy like Elijah does? We should. Let's stand. Let's just close our eyes and focus on the Lord. You know, in those times of Elijah, there was, and I'm going to say more about this tonight when I continue with the story and, and, and preach on First Kings 18, but there was a famine for God's word. 
And maybe in your life there's been a famine for God's word and you haven't really heard God's voice or heard his word in a while. And this morning, maybe for the first time, you're hearing his word again and he's saying to you, I want to put you in my place, in my bed. I want to take you to the upper room and I want to stretch myself out upon you. Mouth to mouth, eye to eye, hand to hand. I want want every part of me to cover every part of you so that I can show mercy to you and resurrect you. And maybe... After a famine of God's word, you've been hearing you, this morning. You've heard God's word for the first time, saying, "I want to, I want to resurrect you. I want to do it for you. I want to save you. Won't you allow me to carry you to the upper room?" If that's you this morning, I, I, I want to urge you to respond. I want to urge you to respond. You see, Ahab in the beginning of chapter seven also heard the word of the Lord, but he didn't respond positively. He ignored it. Hear the warnings. He didn't didn't heed it. Hear now the word of the Lord. It's a warning because God has to judge sin. He's a holy God and He's right to judge sin. And He will judge your sin unless you allow His Son to be stretched out upon you and to take your sin. To take the punishment for your sin. I heard a story once of a, of a general, he was busy fighting a battle and obviously you know, one of the dogs of war is famine. And they were in a camp and they had, everyone was rationed. There were soldiers and some uh, civilians in the camp and everyone had very strict rations. So everyone was hungry, everyone was actually starving but just having a little bit of food every day. And they kept the stores locked and the food locked away. But then they found that food had been stolen from the stores. And they started the investigation. And this general, I can't remember his name, eventually discovered that the person who had stolen the rations was his own elderly mother. And now he had to punish her. Because, I mean, this is a serious crime. When everyone is starving, you know, if people start stealing food, other people are going to die. And, and, and just because she's his mother, he cannot now go soft on her and not punish her. And, and, and the, the punishment was to be flogged. Quite severely, I can't remember, maybe 20 flogs with a whip. And they, they tied her to the table, and as the soldier got ready to flog her, I mean, he knew this, his old elderly mother would die from this flogging. He took off his shirt and he went to lie on top of her. And he said, I'll take it for her. And they flogged him, the general, in his mother's place. And that's what Jesus, our general, does for us. He says, you have stolen, but, but I'll... I'll stretch myself out on you and I'll take the flogging for you. I'll take the crucifixion. I'll take the death for you. Will you not allow him to do that? Will you insist on dying for your own sins? Will you insist on being punished for your own sins? Why would you do that when he so graciously offers to be stretched out upon you and to receive your punishment on your behalf? Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Johannesburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.